Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to News, New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bing, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nanyang Assistant Professor of History, Lawrence Mock, to talk about her book, which is published in 2023, Covert Colonialism. Governance, Surveillance and Political Culture in British Hong Kong from 1966 to 1997. This book fills the gap by researching an unexplored history of colonial governance and political culture in Hong Kong during a critical period for both Chinese society and colonial government in Hong Kong. His author, Florence Mock, who is talking to us today, is a historian of colonial Hong Kong and modern China at the Nanyang Technological University and has published widely on Hong Kong and state society relations and the Cold War. Florence, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, Bang's uh, kind invitation and provide this platform for me to uh, share uh, some of the findings in your new book. Um, so um, let us begin uh, to look at like uh, the core theme of uh, this book. So uh, this book is mainly about Hong Kong, of course, as the title has indicated, uh, which is one of uh, which was one of Britain's last strategically important uh, colonial dependency. And it mainly look at how a reformist colonial administration investigate Chinese political culture, in particular, how activism by social movement in Hong Kong impact on policy making. Um, the most important uh, part of this book, I believe, is uh, to look at the increased organizational capacity of the colonial state at that time. So mainly focusing on uh, two covert mechanism that was embedded in uh, the CDO scheme, that is uh, Tang Tok and Mood. So at that time in colonial Hong Kong, Hong Kong people had extremely limited political rights. Uh, there was no democracy. So these book mainly uh, try to explore how constructive public opinion uh, was used in uh, policy making and how uh, these opinion are mainly used by the colonial state to respond to public needs and to minimize uh, social conflicts. So in terms of uh, source and structure, uh, as Bang has just introduced, I'm a historian. So uh, this book actually uh, utilized a lot of underexplored archival data. So they are mainly in uh, London, uh, in the National Archives, uh, the Hong Kong Public Record Office. There is also uh, special collections in, for example, the Hong Kong University Library, uh, the Hong Kong Baptist University LC2 private papers, and also some of uh, the student newsletter that were uh, that was stored in a CUHK Library Hong Kong collections. So apart from official sources, there would also be unofficial sources such as Chinese and English newspaper reportage. Uh, mainly, uh, we use these historical sources because uh, I'm trying to overcome the limitation in work done by political scientists and sociologists. Uh, there were actually dominate uh, this field previously. So this book is more like uh, empirically driven. So um, the core theme of this book is, uh, as the title has indicated, covert colonialism. So I'm going to look at the mechanism of uh, Tang Tok and Mute, and there are also seven uh, case studies. So the first case study is uh, the Chinese as the official language movement, and the second case study is the uh, anti-corruption campaign. The third case study is the campaign against telephone rate increase, and a 
fourth uh, chapter is on the pressure flood golden jubilee secondary school dispute and then the fifth chapter is on the, uh, the immigration from uh, mainland china mainly looking at the uh Creation and also the abolition of the touch bay uh, policy. And then the sixth chapter is on the uh, British Nationality Act controversy. And the last chapter, uh, I'm going to look at constitutional reforms related to representative assemblies in Hong Kong. So basically, all these uh, seven case studies try to show um, how this mechanism was utilized and also show the process of like how public opinions was managed uh, to transfer into the policy making process. Uh, even Hong Kong did not have a representative government system uh, at that time. So let me talk a bit more about like the period. So the book starts in 1966 and ends in 1997. So uh, the reason why it started at um, in, in 1966 is because uh, for those that are familiar with uh, Hong Kong history, they would know that it was the year that the uh, Star Ferry riots actually broke out in Hong Kong. So we can see it was like a watershed in Hong Kong history, signifying changing political culture locally. And um, in that year, uh, for following that year, we also have the 1967 riots that was like uh, kind of like um, influenced by the Cultural Revolution in mainland China. So in this period, uh, we can see uh, the internal and external security in Hong Kong was uh, inseparable as well. And uh, if we look at the broader picture, we can also see in this period that uh, the British Empire was actually uh, declining because it has lost a lot of strategically important places uh, after the Second World War. So for example, uh, India was lost and also like the Suez Canal, etc, etc. And a period also uh, witnessed changing Sino-British relations as well. And at times we can see Sino-British relations actually deteriorate. So by 1969, um, after the riots, after the uh, uh, 1966 and 1967 riots, uh, the colonial government actually uh, understood that Hong Kong future must inevitably lie in China. So it was just a matter of time that they have to retreat. But uh, in the time being, uh, when they were still in Hong Kong, uh, the colonial bureaucrat have to find ways uh, to de develop a sense of civic pride as a substitute for national loyalty. Um, and these will be very important bargaining chips for them to prepare for future negotiation with China as well. And in the same period, uh, we can also see the political system was uh, changing. Even uh, uh, there was uh, not a lot of like constitutional reform in the earlier period. So in that period, uh, there was uh, these partially elected urban council in Hong Kong, uh, but it did not really have much executive power. So there was still an absence of a direct state society communication channels. And uh, that was the time uh, after the two riots that uh, I've just mentioned, uh, the city district officer scheme at CDO scheme uh, was uh, introduced in 1968. So that is actually the focus of uh, this book. And uh, in the same period, especially after the 70s, we can also see Hong Kong has a series of uh, legislative and institutional reforms, especially uh, during Matley Ho's era uh, that was also known as uh, the golden era uh, to some historians. So the period actually lasts from uh, 1971 to 82. So for example, uh, in this period, we can see Chinese uh, finally became official language of Hong Kong. Uh, the ICAC in Independent Commission Against Corruption uh, was set up in 1974. Uh, Touch Bay policy was introduced first in 1974, but then abolished in 1980. And there was also introdu uh, introduction of free education as well. And uh, of course, at the same time, we can see uh, state society relations and also political cultures were also shifting. And economically, of course, uh, it it's an important period because we can see Hong Kong was undergoing uh, industrialization and later turned into this uh, center of commerce and also finance as well. So all these are actually very important precursor to political and social changes even in uh, today's uh, post-colonial Hong Kong. And some may be curious how I come up with uh, this topic. Uh, so these is actually uh, derived from uh, my PhD thesis uh, when I was at York uh, back then. So uh, I was reading a lot of uh, literature about uh, uh, Hong Kong state society relations, uh, but these literature were uh, mainly written by uh, political scientists and sociologists. So for example, historian George Anicott uh, argued that Hong Kong was actually a minimum of government in the style of Baphomet laissez-faire. Uh, 
So he wrote his work in uh, 1964, quite early. But then um, other uh, sociologists and political scientists in the 70s seems to also support uh, his ideas. So for example, J.S. Holtley, Ambrose King, and also Norman Miners uh, also believe that um, these are uh, minimum government was like also due to the fact that uh, people were not really interested in uh, politics uh, and there was like clearly low level of political participation and uh, some some of them also argued that it was the refugee mentality because uh, most of the population uh, in Hong Kong were migrants or like refugees from uh, mainland China trying to um, uh, go to Hong Kong to escape from the political turmoil, basically. So they were more like influenced by this uh, refugee mentality of like trying not to rock the boat and uh, to uh, ensure that uh, the environment was like politically stable. And they were also influenced by these like Confucius values, for example, like uh, try not to uh, stir social conflicts, try to emphasize on uh, social harmony, uh, to more focus on uh, the moral characters of the leaders rather than how the government was actually formed, etc., etc. Uh, so basically, with all these characteristics, uh, the colonial government, according to uh, the scholars, they were managed uh, to uh, gain legitimacy uh, through this practice of like uh, corruptions. So in Ambrose King's work, that is the administrative absorption of politics. So basically, by uh, incorporating uh, these, uh, some of them are uh, were leaders, uh, business elite, and later uh, some of the uh, members at the grassroots level through the CDO scheme, uh, the colonial government was able to gain a legitimacy. Uh, uh, without even uh, introducing any sort of like democratic uh, reforms. And in 1982, we can see this idea was actually uh, further developed by a sociologist, uh, Lao Siu Gai. So he argued that Hong Kong was a minimally integrated social political system, which means that on the one hand, uh, the Hong Kong Chinese, they were politically aloof, mainly influenced by uh, the concept of utilitarianistic feminism. That is, they were place uh, their family interests above that of the society. And uh, on the other hand, the uh, colonial government also did not have these uh, organizational capacity to penetrate into the Chinese society as well. And all the existing and networks or like communication channel between the state and the society were relatively weak, according to Lao. However, recently we learned that this is actually an inaccurate view. Um, yes, Hong Kong to some extent was quite politically stable, but does it mean that uh, there was uh, no active, uh, uh, does it mean that there were absence of like political activism? Or uh, does it mean that people were like completely apathetic uh, about like the developments or like uh, public affairs? So uh, that that is actually not an accurate view, and we understand now as an historian, um, a lot of these like sociologists or like political science literature they mainly rely on theories and also interview data. Uh, some of them were actually quite a historical as well, so it actually missed out a lot of like useful information about context. And of course, there were other important factors that were not really explore um, in this existing soci sociologists and also political science literature, such as like demographics. And these older literature tend to treat uh, the population more as a homogeneous ent entity. And um, we now have more books or like articles that uh, were written by uh, revisionists showing that uh, the state was actually very active when it comes to intervention. And also uh, there was uh, increased political mobilization in the Chinese society as well. So some of the work maybe, uh, for example, we can look at uh, Michael Ng's uh, recent book published by the Cambridge University Press that is uh, showing the how pervasive censorship was uh, in Hong Kong post-war period. And of course, uh, Ray Yep's uh, work on the 1967 riot also showed uh, how emergency regulations uh, were used uh, during uh, the riots. So all these uh, literature actually show us that uh, there was increased state reforms and intrusion, uh, which of course uh, the previous literature uh, did not mention. And um, one of the things that uh, this book also uh, hoped to do, uh, apart from like responding to like the earlier literature that I've just mentioned, is to uh, answer the question whether Hong Kong fits into the general pattern of decolonization or more was an outliner uh, of uh, outliner in the British Empire. So we can see after the Second World War, uh, there was a lot of uh, anti-colonial uh, anti nationalism or like insurgency uh, in the British Empire. Uh, but Hong Kong seems to be an anomaly, for example, suggested by historian like John Darwin. 
So uh, for Hong Kong, it did not seem to have a lot of like um, movement or like attempts uh, by the society to overthrow the uh, colonial state. But at the same time, um, we can also look at the political system uh, of Hong Kong in the immediate post-war period. It was largely unreformed. So for example, the Legislative Council, um, many of the members still appointed by the governor. They were mainly professionals and business elite. Uh, similarly, in the Executive Council, councillors were also appointed by governor or the queen. And then we have the uh, urban council as mentioned but uh, of course it possesses a very little executive power and also have a very narrow franchise so in a sense there was a lack of uh, direct channels for mass political participation in this period so this book basically tried to uh, respond to uh, all these arguments of like the earlier um, sociologists, political science writing about state society relations, and also like uh, the ideas that whether Hong Kong was an outliner uh, in terms of decolonization in the British Empire. So what what are the arguments of this book? Uh, so this book this book mainly argues that the colonial administration possessed increased organizational capacity in the period uh, after all these reforms. So in particular, the focus of this book, uh, the city district officer scheme, uh, shows that um, the colonial government was active in investing in its uh, surveillance apparatus since the late 1960s. Uh, in particular, uh, the covert opinion polling system, Tantok and Mood, aimed uh, to construct public opinions and then feed them back to the policy and making process. So these are uh, mechanism was actually a carefully constructed uh, statecraft. Um, it allowed Hong Kong Chinese to influence policy uh, formulation in a subtle way at the discretion of the colonial state without having to introduce democratic electoral reform that may provoke China resistance and politicize the Chinese population in Hong Kong. And uh, the second part of this book also look at these uh, increased political activism and diverse political cultures among different uh, people in different age group, in different social class, and uh, Based on this finding, it would argue that uh, the Hong Kong case was actually far from an anomaly. So it basically was only utilizing some old tactics of imperial rule to new circumstances that was uh, that were unique to Hong Kong. And of course, uh, Hong Kong has its own mechanism and own form of uh, colonialism and decolonization because of these uh, unique geopolitics. Uh, that is exactly why all these mechanisms were actually covert rather than overt. So let's talk about uh, the origins of Tang Tok and Mu, that is uh, the covert uh, mechanisms uh, that we have been talking about. So uh, since the founding of the PRC, uh, the uh, uh, the PRC has always viewed that uh, the treaty that governed Hong Kong uh, were unequal and also invalid. It therefore has always been opposed to Hong Kong's uh, democratization. Uh, by 1950s, uh, the colonial government was still uncertain about like the attitudes of uh, uh, the Chinese government. But by the mid 1960s, it was uh, pretty sure that uh, China would not accept any attempts uh, uh, by the colonial government or like by the British government to democratize Hong Kong. And uh, this view was actually uh, widely accepted among uh, the colonial bureaucrats. And uh, this assumption was basically uh, because uh, these colonial bureaucrats associate uh, changes in constitutional status or like the introduction of uh, democratic electoral reforms uh, to self-government and independence based on the experiences in other British colonies. And um, by 1967, after the uh, 1967 riots, uh, it was uh, very clear that uh, China would object to any uh, democratic development in Hong Kong. And another concern uh, that co the colonial government had was that um, if uh, elections were actually allowed or like introduced uh, in colonial Hong Kong, then uh, it would basically entangle Hong Kong into the Cold War politics. So uh, there could be emergence of both pro-nationalist and also pro-communist Hong Kong-based uh, politicians, which is uh, which was a scenario that, uh, of course, uh, they did not want to see. And it is important for us to know, uh, to know that uh, Hong Kong at that time was actually very much uh, militarily uh, vulnerable. So uh, 
in, uh, immediately after the uh, formation of the PRC, Hong Kong's garrison has actually been strengthened. Uh, however, it was soon scaled down again, and mainly because of uh, the Korean War. And uh, at the same time, we can see that uh, Hong Kong's strategic interest in general has diminished uh, for the British after the Second World War. And uh, even the British tried to ask uh, for the US help uh, to defend Hong Kong in cases of like a potential uh, Chinese invasion. Uh, the US was uh, extremely reluctant. So uh, by 1952, uh, in internal report, we could actually see that uh, um, the uh, British government had reached this agreement that uh, if there was any uh, full-scale attack uh, by the Commerce China, uh, at that point, they would just uh, evacuate. So they basically would not really defend Hong Kong. So uh, in other words, uh, because of uh, the fact that Hong Kong was militarily uh, indefensible. So the internal stability and also external security of Hong Kong largely uh, was rest on uh, the Chinese government decision uh, to maintain the status quo. So basically, uh, a um, normal relationship that could allow uh, the British to continue to administrate uh, Hong Kong. So this is one direct quote from uh, the Hong Kong Public Record Office. Uh, basically, the colonial government uh, believed that they should try uh, to avoid provoking China uh, unnecessarily and consider very carefully any actions to which the Chinese people's government would feel bound to react to, which include the introduction of democratic reforms that would challenge China's sovereignty over Hong Kong and open the door to a confrontation uh, between left-wing and also right-wing supporters. So that explain why uh, there was no uh, major constitutional or like, democratic reforms uh, in the immediately post-war period in Hong Kong. So uh, this is another direct quote also from a document that's called Aims and Policy of the Hong Kong Government uh, in the Hong Kong Public Records Office. So uh, these uh, documents says, uh, many people will tell us and often do that none of this is as effective in promoting the rights of the citizens as democratic self-government. But it is commonly held that uh, the Chinese government will accept the status of Hong Kong only for as long as there are no constitutional developments which may be interpreted as pointing towards self-government. You will therefore not find in government policy any intention to promote sophisticated Western democratic institution. We have to get our public participation in other ways. So these actually explain uh, the origins of tongue talk and mood uh, as some sort of like imperfect substitute for uh, democratic reforms in Hong Kong. So uh, when the CDO scheme, uh, City District Officer scheme uh, was introduced uh, in 1968, before that, uh, there were also other uh, channels of communication, but most of them were uh, indirect. For example, we can see uh, the colonial government had been monitoring a lot of like Chinese uh, presses to get a sense of like public opinion. There were also Kaifeng associations through these uh, Kaifeng leaders. They tried to uh, get a sense of like what people, uh, many in the street actually uh, thought. Uh, of different like important issues or like the government policies. But uh, by the late 1960s, it was very obvious that uh, these channels were no longer working effectively. So for example, the colonial secretary, E.B. Teasdale, uh, he mentioned that all these um, measures or like these existing mechanism uh, still leave a good deal of ground untouched. And more importantly, uh, these uh, Kaifeng Association, they were actually in decline in the later period. So we can see they become increasingly difficult to recruit younger members as well. So it was in this context that uh, the city district office scheme was introduced as the first direct state society communication channel, which aimed to increase uh, political participation without implementing democratic reforms. It also aligned with the informal devolution of power. Uh, so this is another direct quote uh, from uh, the Hong Kong Public Record Office. The people of Hong Kong would realize that the policies of Hong Kong government were in their best interest and a sound method of local government could be developed so that the colonial government could govern and determine in partnership with those who live here what is right uh, for Hong Kong and its people and not abdicate to external pressure. The CDO scheme was actually a multifunctional political structure. So it aimed to act as eyes and ears of uh, the 
government. So basically help to uh, have these surveillance, monitor changing public opinions, and also like uh, learn what was the gossips or like what did the people in the street uh, really talk about like every day. And at the same time, it was also a voice uh, of the government as well. Uh, so uh, through that, uh, the officer would also try to uh, explain uh, government policy and also answer public inquiries and also manage district affairs. So um, these city district officers, uh, they were actually intended to be political officers and they have a considerable influence uh, in the district. So uh, their functions were to foresee local problems and conflicts and to initiate proposal for changes when needs uh, were apparent. And one very interesting mechanism that was embedded in the CDO scheme was uh, the town talk. So we can look at town talk. Uh, what, what, what is town talk? So town talk basically was a covert opinion poll that tried to incorporate the lower strata of the society into the administrative system and policy making process. So another direct quote uh, from uh, the uh, Hong Kong Public Record Office uh, documents, uh, we've just mentioned that a substitute for uh, representative democracy uh, was needed because uh, Western democratic institution could not be promoted in Hong Kong and other ways for political participation had to be sought. So these uh, town talk mechanism actually help uh, the colonial government to detect any strong current or public feelings and solicit views of men in the street from different walks of life. And we can uh, look at these two other quote uh, from the PRO as well. So uh, it was mentioned that when policies and, and, and programs are being formulated, much attention is focused upon the relevance of informed and independent opinion. Indeed, this process is probably taken, um, sorry, taken further in Hong Kong than in most territories. Uh, in particular, the city district office scheme opened up new opportunities in this direction. And every advantage should be taken of this scope uh, it offers for consulting public opinions on particular district projects. So it is very obvious that uh, the colonial government uh, hope to use this covert mechanism to uh, solicit public views, but at the same time to uh, basically uh, use them as input when they were formulating policies and programs. And the second quote is uh, colonial government performance to be compared reasonably well with uh, that achieved by more formal democratic process that exists in the West, especially in entertaining complaints and consulting the public. So you can see at the from the colonial government perspective, uh, they believe that these uh, covert mechanisms actually work fairly well uh, in Hong Kong and could be comparable to uh, democratic reforms uh, in in um, other countries. So why this mechanism had to be covert? So I think one very important point that we mentioned was uh, China's likely opposition. It was uh, because of the geopolitics, it was uh, just not possible to introduce major constitutional changes in Hong Kong in that period. And if uh, the colonial government tried to introduce uh, these changes, uh, it would be possible that there would just be more like potential popular demands for uh, other changes like constitutional changes as well. So they have to uh, look for a substitute for this representative democracy. And another um, usefulness of uh, this mechanism for the colonial government is that uh, the degree of the society political engagement uh, was uh, completely controlled by the government because uh, this mechanism was covert and the public was uh, not aware of its assistance. In this case, even there were a lot of exercises that had been done, a lot of monitoring. Um, it still provides this uh, leeway uh, for the colonial government to decide when to listen or when not to listen uh, to public opinions. So we can see it is a, a very interesting colonial statecraft that was a, a due attempt by uh, the colonial state to expand its organizational capacity to gather intelligence on public opinion on the one hand, but also to widen channels of uh, political participation on the other hand. So in terms of manpower costs and methodologies, we can see uh, since the very beginning of this uh, project, the uh, colonial government has been very serious and invest a lot. So uh, for example, we can look at uh, the manpower in 1968, uh, uh, moot, uh, sorry, already have over 100 uh, reporting officers and each exercise would take about like 110 hours, costing quite a lot of money, more than uh, 1,300. And then, uh, it also stated that uh, Coleman solicited uh, 
could not be selected, but have to be random. So this is to ensure that um, they can have the opinions of people uh, of different social class in different areas of different occupations. And then the officer were supposed to frame their questions uh, in a neutral ways as well. Uh, as mentioned, because uh, they hope that these are uh, this sort of like um, exercise uh, could be done in, in some sort of like random way. And it, it basically suggests that uh, these officers should not interview people uh, in the same uh, social groups uh, for an excessive numbers. And uh, whenever they encounter people that try to imply that uh, the government was inefficient, the government was corrupt and other problems, uh, they should not agree uh, with this view, but instead they should provide a rational account uh, of the government. So we can see that uh, Tang Talk did not only try to uh, provide intelligence uh, uh, to the government or like to uh, find out about these uh, public opinions. It also have this function trying to shape uh, public opinions and improve the image of the colonial government. So we can see that in this exercise that uh, people of different groups, uh, of different social class, occupation and geographical areas, uh, uh, these respondents would be included. And in terms of dissemination, so after uh, all these exercises uh, have been done, uh, they would be organized into uh, reports uh, that is, uh, of course, called Tang Talk. And then they will be circulated to high-ranked civil servants and policymakers who will take time to read it and often discuss it with uh, heads of department. So high-ranked uh, uh, colonial bureaucrats. And um, Tang Talk was actually restricted so its existence was concealed uh, from the public. And not only the public, but in fact, uh, the government also hoped that uh, it would not get into hands of uh, junior officers. So this is mainly to avoid the criticism of being a, a civilian state and also um, help the colonial government to control uh, the level of uh, the so-called political participation. Uh, so we can see that even um, Tang Talk has this like deal attempt, uh, its function as an intelligent device was prioritized uh, to that of like increasing uh, popular political uh, participation. So there were uh, a lot of evidence that seems to suggest that a tongue talk uh, really uh, was influencing policy at uh, the policy making process. So, for example, uh, this is a quote from David Lai, the city district commissioner of Kowloon uh, in 1969. Uh, he said, there's no doubt that the Tang Talk paper had been had become not just an information paper on what people have been talking about in Tang, but an increasingly effective paper to get uh, departments into action. This is largely because of uh, the importance given to the, to the paper by uh, the governor and also uh, that implied criticism in some cases of government departments. So uh, some examples that I can find uh, in the uh, National Archives in London was that a town talk was actually also partly contributed uh, to the setting up of the uh, ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption uh, in Hong Kong in 1974. So we can see during the discussion process uh, whether uh, an an independent uh, commission or a uh, a um, a uh, inquiry that was like more like appointed by London in London should be set up. Uh, Tanto actually had these like analyzed or public opinions about it. And according to uh, these files uh, in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, it says uh, Tanto of uh, 2nd of August said that uh, several people have suggested the British government should now launch a full separate investigation into the Gobba case. As again, this a UK inquiry would be a major blow to Hong Kong's Amman proper. So we can see that uh, in this case, uh, the uh, comments or uh, the public opinions that was recorded in Tang Tao were actually uh, taken into consideration when it comes to this uh, institutional change. So uh, from this case, we can see that uh, Tang Tao actually uh, facilitate to uh, within the channel of political participation. Even uh, in this period, we can see this continued absence of a democratic uh, electoral system uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, so at that time, uh, uh, because of the importance of Tang Talk, we can see uh, there is a more uh, reforms um, in the mechan in the mechanism itself, so we can see that, for example, the sample size was expanded. So previously, they did not really state that how many people you should interview, but now at least you have to interview like six hundred people. It also start adopting this quota sampling system, and uh, of course, uh, 
is district by district. So basically, uh, these 600 people uh, distribution will be based on uh, the distribution of gender, age, and occupation in that area. Uh, a random sampling method, however, was uh, ruled out mainly because of uh, uh, the insufficient manpower at that time and how expensive it could be. So uh, all these changes actually helped uh, to turn Town Talk into a more reliable exercise and uh, help the colonial government to have a greater reach into the uh, Chinese society. Uh, because previously within the colonial uh, bureaucracy, there were uh, these uh, criticism that uh, Tang Tao was mostly unsystematic, it was uh, very impressionistic, but did not have any statistical support. But however, because of these like uh, criticism uh, about like Tang Talk, uh, the colonial government decided uh, in 1975, uh, it has to introduce uh, a exercise called MOOD, uh, that is movement of opinion direction. So MOOD was actually a successor of Tang Talk, but it was supposed to be a more uh, affrontative and therefore inferential public opinion poll. It mainly draw attention to uh, subjects which were uh, at that time currently or potentially a public concern. It also hoped to assess uh, public reactions, attitudes and feelings in appropriate instances and uh, collect opinions that were not reported by uh, the news media. And uh, it would also examine the impact of the press on public opinions, some public misconceptions and the voices of the less articulate classes who uh, otherwise couldn't get their views heard all I would have uh, difficulties and therefore suffer in silence. Uh, more importantly, controversial topics and anti-government uh, activities would also be examined. So uh, the whole reform uh, turning uh, Tang Talk into mood was basically hoping to have a more credible and refined and methodologies. So for example, like previously, we noticed that uh, some of the CDO actually would interview the better informed uh, respondent more frequently uh, means that there was no comprehensive view of a cross-section of communities uh, in Hong Kong. And the fact that it was uh, usually organized uh, on a weekly basis also means that the CDO would have very limited time for full investigation of the issues. And sometimes uh, the reports also reflect more like the bias of the uh, officials, therefore like distorting uh, public uh, opinion as well. So uh, to expand uh, uh, the sampling size, uh, to prevent uh, these uh, uh, more informed uh, respondent to be interviewed repeatedly. Uh, so now we have a new method. So for example, we can see that uh, the sample was expanded uh, by using data supplied by the mutual aid committees and also the Kaifeng Association. And now each staff would have a 50 person contact list and every week one third of the people were removed and then replaced by new contacts. And then the uh, community information unit also uh, would be responsible for continuing to monitor uh, media comments to understand sentiments of sensitive groups. And, and now the sample size had also been expanded. Uh, rather than only interviewing at least 600 people, it uh, now interviewed at least uh, 200, uh, 2,005 100 people. So uh, in this uh, 2,500 people, the details of age group, class, educational background, type of residence, gender, and occupation would also be provided. And uh, because mood was still a uh, qualitative uh, exercise, so uh, it still adhered to using unstructured uh, sampling uh, method and also interviewing techniques. By 1977, we can see that uh, just in uh, conducting this uh, mood exercise, we have at least between 150 and 250 monitors. And uh, the regular updated contact list now have more than uh, 10,000 people. So to cover a wider cross-section of uh, Hong Kong and uh, to make it like more uh, random, uh, less uh, selective, uh, we can also see there was increase in incidental contact uh, uh, at least by uh, 2,000 to 3,000. And it was specified that no respondents should be interviewed more than once in less than four months. And um, of course, uh, there were still uh, a lot of like interviewing questions uh, because uh, some of them were uh, mainly like qualitative exercise. So um, it depends on the nature of the exercise and also like uh, the question that or the topic that they are trying to find out. Sometimes uh, it was through observations, sometimes it could be through a questionnaire, sometimes it was uh, uh, through interviews. And 
it is uh, interesting to also point out that uh, uh, Mood actually also borrows some of uh, the system uh, from Osaka Feedback Scheme and also the Japanese Monitor for National Policy as well. So it was not exactly uh, completely original, but it actually uh, uh, borrowed ideas from uh, other system and uh, uh, tried to adapt that uh, to the Hong Kong uh, unique environment. And in terms of interviewing techniques in order to get to the heart of these uh, uh, respondents, uh, basically, uh, these CDO were instructed not to uh, standardize uh, their, their questions or like uh, not to have a like very specific orders when it comes to uh, asking questions. And previously, uh, we can see that uh, because Tang Talk uh, mainly focusing on urban area of Hong Kong, uh, that is uh, Kowloon and Hong Kong Island, uh, it really did not cover uh, the new territories such as uh, Chumpuan. Uh, but now we can see that uh, uh, by 1980, uh, it start covering uh, Chumwan and Kwai Chung, uh, the new territories. Uh, it also start adopting a quota sampling method. Uh, that is the selection of contact was uh, uh, um, according uh, to gender, age, and occupation, and now in proportion to the number and also distribution of the overall uh, population uh, in the area. However, for more important uh, topics, uh, such as like green paper or like future uh, constitutional reforms uh, or like uh, the potential handover of Hong Kong, the colonial government still uh, prefer to use more uh, scientific methods that is like more uh, st statistically uh, based uh, rather than this like very qualitative exercise. And we can see because of the uh, adoption of the quota sampling method, uh, the uh, exercise also reduced the sampling size now from uh, 2,500 to uh, 993. So uh, I realize we are uh, running out of time, but um, these exercises, uh, as far as I, I can see, uh, at least survive until uh, November 1992. So this was actually the last copy of our uh, uh, talking points. Uh, I guess uh, that's the... Um, the next version of mute uh, that could be found in uh, uh, the archives. And uh, Talking Point uh, was uh, a weekly record of issues of current interest collected from a small number of respondents in both urban and also new territory district issue every Friday. Uh, the, reason, um, um, the reason why, I guess, like, uh, talking point uh, was still uh, in use was because uh, the colonial government still care about like this uh, qualitative aspect of uh, public opinion. But at the same time, we can see compared to, for example, like the late 60s or like the 70s, uh, these covert mechanism become way less uh, significant. Uh, that was because uh, there was increased democratization at the local level. For example, uh, there was, uh, we begin to have uh, the district board election in 1982. Uh, of course, after the Sino-British Joint Declaration were reached, we can see uh, even more constitutional reforms uh, in Hong Kong. So there was this gradual decline of the paradigm of consultative uh, politics in Hong Kong. And by the 1980s, uh, as mentioned, when it comes to like more important uh, topics that require more manpower or like that uh, the colonial government would hope to have uh, more statistical backing, they would actually contract that out uh, to commercial polling and also research firm and sometimes uh, uh, universities as well. So we can see that, yes, uh, these covert mechanisms still exist now in the name of talking points, but it was actually become way less significant compared to that in the uh, 1960s, late 1960s, and also the uh, 1970s. So uh, let's make a short conclusion. So in conclusion, based on this finding, uh, we can uh, argue that I guess Hong Kong was far from a minimally integrated social political system, unlike what Lao has suggested. So we can see the colonial government and the Chinese society interact frequently. And uh, in particular, Tang Tok and Mood, they were important mechanism uh, for the colonial government to understand changing popular sentiments and also help them in policy making. And we can see this covert polling exercise was also institutionalized as well, embedded in the city district officer scheme. Means that the colonial government have both the wills and means um, to um, monitor the Chinese society and also to uh, to uh, understand uh, um, their public opinions as well. So that is the manifestation of covert colonialism. Uh, but at the same time, interestingly, uh, these uh, 
mechanism also allow ordinary people to take part in the policy formulation process in a state control, but at, uh, but in a state control and also a covert manner. So we can see that um, this uh, priority, uh, the, the priority of uh, this exercise, basically, uh, it focus more on like getting the intelligence uh, for uh, the colonial government uh, to find out more about like public opinions to minimize social unrest uh, is more was more important uh, compared to really allowing these people to take more part in uh, the policy formulation process. And uh, mainly it was introduced because uh, it, uh, the colonial government hoped not to provoke China or like further politicize uh, the population as well. So the second part of this book, as we can see, like in those case study, actually, uh, we also talk about like the political cultures of uh, different social class and age groups, which, uh, however, I don't think we have enough time to cover uh, in this um conversation right now. So for example, it will show that uh, the upper and middle classes are opposed to political activism and they saw a political activism uh, actually incompatible uh, with their social status. They tend to be more pro-status quo, uh, but the, for the working class, they were less informed, but uh, they could be mobilized when their interests uh, were affected as well. They were mainly driven by instrumentalism, Middle-aged and elderly members of the society were more politically conservative. Uh, the young generation tend to have a more anti-colonial outlook. Uh, so um, if you are interested, you're more than welcome to uh, read the rest of the book or like, you can email me as well. And I guess lastly, uh, because um, we can see that uh, the CDO scheme itself was actually... Um, uh, trying to basic basically uh when the CDO scheme was uh discussed it draw experiences from for example uh the district officer scheme uh that were previously implemented in Africa it also draw uh, uh some of the mechanism and experiences from uh, the people's association in Singapore and also as we can see uh, of course uh, when it become mood uh, it also uh learn some of the technique and also borrow some of the techniques uh from the Japanese system as well so I would say that uh in this case like Hong Kong was not exactly an anomaly because we can see that uh, it actually uh borrow these ideas or like these uh statecraft from uh different places uh but only adapted to like uh Hong Kong because of like Hong Kong unique geopolitics and environment. So I, I'm gonna stop talking now. So if uh, Bang, you have any questions, then uh, you're more than welcome to ask or like if there's anything you would want to uh, discuss in particular, uh, please please feel free. Thank you for Florence for this uh, delightful, uh, interesting in, uh, presentation of her book. And for me, I think it's really a timely book regarding what has happened in Hong Kong in the past 10 years and also regarding this relationship with China, with mainland China and also in the great, greater China region. For me, I when while I was reading the book, I can see the line, the, the whole timeline, how Hong Kong become uh, a democratic polity through these uh, strategies uh, administered by the colonial, by its colonial um, government. So I think it's it's quite confusing concept, the covert colonialism, because I think it extend even extend my understanding about colonialism to in, in the way. I I may I I actually quite interesting in how you pick those seven case studies because to me they yeah they are really rich for in how do you come across the these case studies and on what ground that you designed to use these seven case studies instead of others if you don't mind yeah sure I mean uh for these case studies so uh because of uh, they were basically um so most of the uh um, so um the the selection of the case study mainly based on of course like archival archival findings as well but I try to look at case study that uh, involve like um people of like different uh, social class and age group for example like they were political uh, activism or like social movement uh but at the same time um those uh, case study uh, one 
have abundant record in uh, their archives, whether in London, whether in Hong Kong, or like other special collections in different university, and also uh, widely reported by newspaper. Uh, two is like the case hasn't been really um, thoroughly covered by other uh, existing uh, work or like by other existing historians. So basically, uh, these were the criteria that I used uh, to uh, look at. Uh, to, to select the case studies. And also, uh, more importantly, it's like those case studies usually have uh, have an outcome. So sometimes, that, uh, for example, the Chinese as uh, an official language, uh, people were uh, fighting to turn, uh, to legalize Chinese as uh, the official language of the state. And um, of course, like by 1974, uh, they were successful uh, because uh, there was a law and ordinance that actually announced that Chinese was one of the official languages in Hong Kong. Uh, but in other cases, for example, like the British Nationality Act uh, controversy uh, in 1981, uh, we can see even there were a lot of like the executive uh, councillors, a lot of like uh, some of the local Chinese that actually uh, disapprove uh, these uh, change in terms of like nationality, which of course would affect uh, the right to reside in, in the United Kingdom uh, because it affects, for example, other colonial dependent dependency. It also affects like the Metropole London. So um, these uh, voices, these public voices actually did not uh, successfully persuade uh, uh, the uh, British government to introduce like any changes. So we, we can see like, um, Usually they have this demand, but at the same time, we can also see an outcome. So uh, sometimes, like, yes, public opinion managed to um, make changes. Like um, it could lead to like um, passage of like legislation, uh, uh, creation of new institution. But sometimes uh, it uh, when it have uh, when it affects uh, more places uh, rather than just Hong Kong, when it affects the metropole uh, that is London, the UK, then it would uh, it would not have a as powerful as impact like like as powerful impact as like the other cases. So I think that that are the main criteria like I was thinking about when selecting the case studies. Maybe um, I think it's a quite interesting concept of the covert colonialism. I I'm quite interested to know to what extent have town talk and mood this kind of strategy influence the relationship between Hong Kong people and the colonial government at the time or or even to today if if you if you have any idea on this okay so uh, thanks for the question I cannot answer for like um today's Hong Kong because uh my research stops at stop in 1997 so uh, I don't really have much uh, information about like a current Hong Kong especially like archival data uh, but if you are asking about like um the changing state society relations at that time so there are a few things that uh, we can understand from this book or like from this research so I think one is uh, we can see um the colonial government be trying to become increasingly responsive to public opinions if uh, it could, because obviously we understand that after the 66 and 67 riots, there was this like, problem of legitimacy uh, for the colonial government. So it is important for them to like to stay in touch with changing public opinions and to minimize uh, the chance of like similar events uh, to happen again. So we can see this initiative uh, but at the same time, uh, we because it's colonialism, right? So we can also see that uh, the colonial government, even they were keen to be more responsive or like they reform uh, uh, these uh, communication channels, they still prioritize um, their own interests. That is uh, to one, to gather this intelligence because this is for their legitimacy and this is like for uh, uh, the stability of Hong Kong. Uh, but also two uh, is that simply because it's covert, it actually uh, gives them these advantages that they can just decide when to listen or not to listen to public opinions. Because imagine if this is overt, um, for example, if the colonial government have a large scale uh, public survey on, uh, I don't know, maybe constitutional change, and then maybe it suggests that, oh, majority actually support constitutional change. And at the end, it did not really listen to public opinion what would happen. So the covert nature of this exercise actually uh, prevent this sort of situation from happening and give uh, the colonial government a considerable uh, 
amount of flexibility or like leeway uh, when it comes to policy making. So you can see that yes, even like um, it seems like there were more channel for uh, the Chinese society uh, to express their opinions uh, and also to ask for changes. But at the same time, uh, the colonial government still uh, have their own interest. And I mean, um, the the um, presentation just now probably haven't uh, covered everything, but we can see the political cultures were changing as well. So in the book itself, uh, it actually talks about how people have changing views uh, towards uh, the colonial government, towards Hong Kong, or like um, a specific uh, policy or change as well. So previously, I guess um, the old generation that were migrants or like that uh, have the so-called refugee mentality, uh, they tend to be uh, more afraid of officialdom. So uh, unless uh, uh, there was something major, they would try not to, for example, contact the police. It was also because uh, the police was also quite corrupt at that time because uh, uh, we can see that um, corruption was actually quite serious in Hong Kong before the ICAC was formed. And um, the uh, corruption department was actually located within the police force as well. So people did not have this confidence to reach out uh, to officials when they need help. But we can see uh, very obviously uh, in the 70s, since the 70s, these have been changing. So people became more focal when uh, they see something that was like unjust or like they were not happy about specific policy, they would be more willing uh, to, to speak out basically. So we can see that um, some of the case study, for example, Chinese as the official language, um, it did not only involve like the students, uh, groups that were like the usual like active um, historical actors in the period, but it also involved a lot of like working class, ordinary people that also care about the language issues as well. So I guess another thing we can see is like these changing state society relations. So obviously there was changing ways uh, or approach taken by the colonial government to uh, handle um, uh, issues in the Chinese society to try to be more responsive, but at the same time provide themselves a certain degree of uh, flexibility. But uh, at the same time, we can also see uh, the Chinese society, they become more um, focal, they become more active. And uh, I think it's a two-way thing. So you can see how the society was actually moving towards like um, the Hong Kong, maybe like in the 1990s or like even after the handover, like the Hong Kong now, because I think like all these actually uh, facilitate the emergence of these uh, new political cultures. Yes, that's, um, but that's uh, that. But that also comes to my last question. Maybe because, um, how do you think is any government with that uses these kind of, um, mobilizes public participation into pol in political culture, these strategies, uh, a colonial one or a democratic one? If 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 that's the I mean, I am a Hong Kong historian, so I cannot like give very um, precise information of like what uh, other geographical areas or like what other countries um, were doing or are doing. But I mean, uh, from the Hong Kong case, we can see that uh, these sort of situation were uh, used in different places. Um, so for example, I mentioned about like uh, in Africa, in Singapore, or like Japan have also been uh, using some uh, similar monitoring system. So I guess it is, um, if you, we talk about surveillance in general or like uh, opinion monitoring, it would be uh, very common in all sorts of societies, of course. But I guess it's more like how um, the state make use uh, of the opinion that they solicit. So that actually would divine uh, what what actually, whether it was like colonial in some sense or like whether it was democratic, if it makes sense. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that's more... Yes, we can use this um, history provided to explore explore these concepts further because it's always changing the society, uh, the state society relationship is also changing, which comes to like we thanks Florence for today and we've taken up a lot of time, so that's why I'm asking, what's your next um project that regarding Hong Kong studies, if you are doing anything interesting, then I please. I mean, uh, at the moment, uh, me and my team uh, in uh, NTU Singapore, we have uh, set up these uh, 
Hong Kong Research Hub. So we are actually working together uh, on a project that is about water shortages and water supply. So it's quite different uh, from these uh, project uh, on covert colonialism, but uh, it also uh, related in some sense because part of the project also explore like state society relations during crisis, especially uh, these water crisis uh, in the 60s. And we can look at like how um, the crisis management techniques change over time as well. But of course, there were other parts of um, the project that are uh, also quite new to me. For example, we will look at like more environmental history, uh, the development of different like water infrastructure from a reservoir to like desalination plants uh, to uh, catch water, et cetera, et cetera. And we would also try to look at um, how water affect like public culture and also entertainment as well. So we can see, uh, for example, some of you may know uh, there were public culture uh, like movies or drama that are like specifically on the topic of uh, water shortage. There were songs as well. Like some of you may have think of Sam Ho's Zai Zai Go. So a lot of these are very interesting things. So if you are interested in our, our new water project, uh, please stay in touch. And uh, we will have more upcoming events. Uh, many of them are actually hybrid uh, in March and April. Thank you. That sounds really good. Uh, I am I'm really happy that we now there are many Hong Kong study or Hong Kong research hubs that can really treat Hong Kong as an academic subject rather than, you know, it's always within Chinese study and or something like that. I really hope to talk to you again um, for on about your new projects. And thank you for being on the show today. Now we must say goodbye to our, audi our audience. We will say goodbye. Thank you so much. If you're interested, then just send me an email and uh, I we can talk more about like the book or like other projects. Okay, say goodbye everyone. Thank Bye. Bye. Thank you.